0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So what we've been doing in the last several weeks is talking about the Acts of the Spirit. Uh, going through Acts to see how is the Holy Spirit moving in us and through us. And last week, uh, Tim was here, Tim Burnett uh, was here to talk about Acts 16 incredible things God did then. And a uh, real quick round of applause for Tim for doing such a great job. What we believe here is this, that the Spirit is on the move. And not just then, but to today. And that that brings us actually to our first point today. Jesus is still doing through the Spirit. In other words, still means today. Look at verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, Luke wrote these words. And this is the second volume. Acts is the second volume of a two-volume work. The first volume was the Gospel of Luke. Now, what Luke could have done was said, listen, now Jesus is gone. This is all that Jesus did. The first volume was all about all that Jesus did, but it doesn't say that. He says all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What we feel like is, what a lot of commentators feel like is, that means it's going to continue on. And It does. How many of you believe that Jesus is still doing a work today? How many believe he's still doing a work today in you? How many believe he's still doing a work in this church? I believe it too. And that's what began means. It wasn't just a way to start the second volume of this two-volume work. It was to say, he began it then, he's still doing it, and from this point on, you're going to see how dramatically he's doing it. And the point here is, while this chapter is about Jesus speaking to them, the truth is, He's going to do His best work through His Spirit in days to come. And it came all the way, the Spirit work, came all the way to a place called Clinton, Mississippi. How cool is that? And so, all that Jesus began to do through the Spirit, He's still doing. The second thing is this. It's interesting that the Spirit today still majors on the thing that Jesus majored on in this first chapter of the second volume. Look at verse 3. To the apostles, he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so... This is what we feel like probably happened. Jesus gathers the apostles together, gathers these folks together and says, listen, now I've lived with you for three years. I taught you a good many things, but let's review. And he takes them all the way back to the Old Testament, takes them through the last three years. And then he says, and these are the things that are going to be happening. Can you get excited? And these folks, I believe, are pretty excited. The kingdom of God is this. Wherever Jesus is acknowledged and worshiped as king, there's the kingdom of God. And we recognize that any kingdom has boundaries, just like America has boundaries. And those boundaries are ever expanding. And it's up to us by the Spirit to help expand the boundaries. Jesus is going to do it through Dayspring. We feel like Jesus did it through Dayspring even this week as two ladies prayed to receive Christ at the jail. We believe he did it this week as seven people were baptized out the penal farm. And he's doing that sort of thing every week through this church. We ought to give great great praise. Let's give great praise to him. Say, praise the Lord. And I would be wrong to say that's all that he did this week. We haven't had time to tell all the stories the way he's been active. But the king is still king and the boundaries are still expanding and he's using this church, this local church to do it. Now, I do want to say this, since we're right here. Jesus taught them. What we learned from verses 2 to 5 seemed to be this. One of the key ways Jesus prepares his disciples for revival is good, sound doctrine. Good teaching. Now, listen to me. A lot of us have for years said this. America needs revival. And we do. But America... The church of Jesus Christ, day spring, will not get revival if we don't have an appetite, a voracious appetite for good, sound doctrine, good, sound theology, good, sound biblical instruction. Amen? And they had it, and they wanted it. And the more they heard, they wanted more. Can I ask you, are you reading your Bible? (laughs) Is that a dumb question? It's not a dumb question. Because when they do polls, when they do surveys of American evangelicals, very few people are reading their Bible. And yet we want revival? You don't get revival without reading, without studying, without wanting more. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. And I'm going to suggest to you here, there's a lot of things that vie for our attention. A lot of things like the internet, like apps, like computer games, like all kind, like TV, like all kinds of things that come at us that want our attention. And we have to say no to some things to say yes to some other things. I've got to tell you the truth. I don't think revival is likely for America, uh, for America without some kind of incredible supernatural miracle that helps us stop looking at our computer screen 12 hours a day. I didn't get a witness on that. Let me try that one again. I'm going to try it again. Let's see how we do. I don't think there can be a revival in America because we are too glued to our computer screens, to our phone apps, to the TV, and that draws attention away from him. So what are some adjustments that we need to make? In here, in this room. What are some adjustments we need to make to say, I want to spend less attention over there and more attention working on my appetite for good, solid instruction, good teaching for the Bible. Historian J. Edwin Orr says that a theological awakening must precede a revival of religion. A theological awakening, doctrinal awakening, a biblical awakening must precede a revival of religion. I tell you my favorite story of this is King Josiah. Anybody remember that? They found, <laughs> apparently they lost it. They found the book of the law. And they said, oh, my goodness, what is this? And they so, My goodness, this is the book of Moses. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Oh, my, look. And Josiah said, well, where, where was it? Probably it's like our house. It's behind a couple of those cardboard boxes. They'd lost it. They found it. And I don't know all the discussion that happened there, but I'd rather imagine it went like this. What do you think we ought to do with it? Who do you think the brilliant guy was that said, well, maybe we ought to read it? And they read it. Then they said something else. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We are not doing it. We need to change that we might do it. Then they had revival. They read it. They changed because of it. And then God Poured down his blessings on them. Let me give you just a small piece of advice here. Quit just reading your Bible. Read it and every day say, I want to write down in a journal. I want to write down to the bottom of my Bible. I want to write it in the fly leaf of my scripture. Somewhere say, this is what Jesus wants me to change because of my reading today. Too many of us just read the Bible. Stop it. We've got to read it. We've got to change because of it. Then God will bring you personal revival. And let me just say, if he brings you personal revival, he could bring revival to your family. If he brings revival to your family, guess what he could do then? He could bring revival to this church. And if he could do that, hey, he could bring revival to this nation. I want to know, are you into that? Praise God he could do it. But we need to have this appetite for the word of God. An appetite for changing because of the Word of God. An appetite to say, now that all that's happened, rain down your blessings. God will do it, but He will not do it until that happens. Number three is this We are supposed to wait, wait for the Spirit. Now, let me, sometimes in Scripture, what you will notice is over and over again, you'll see a word. Like you go to a book like Leviticus. And you'll notice the word holy is in Leviticus, like 68, 72 times, something like 60 to 70 times. You think, whoa, God's trying to get my attention in Leviticus because of the word holy. He sometimes will do it because of the repetition of a word. Sometimes, however, he gets their attention because that word is found nowhere else but right there. This is one of those times. This word in the Greek, wait, this is the only time it's in the New Testament. He's trying to get their attention. Hey, this word is important. It's the only time it's used, so make sure to obey it. So I, uh, I looked it up in the Greek. Then I looked it up. Can I tell you the truth? What I'm finding in my Greek and English studies is simply this. Some of the best insights you'll ever get is with an English dictionary. Literally. See that biblical word? A bunch of scholars got together and said, the best word for parameno right there is weight. So a bunch of biblical PhD guys said, wait is the word. But they meant the English word wait is the best word. What you need to do is go say, let me go find out what wait means then. Then you think you know. I thought I knew what wait meant. Can I tell you? I looked it up in Webster's New World Dictionary. The first thing it says in Webster's New World Dictionary is to remain until something expected happens. I'm going to stay here till this thing happens. Second thing is this. In Webster's New World Dictionary, to be ready. <laughs> it seems to be, hey, I know something good's about ready to happen. I'm going to stay here till it happens, and I'm going to be ready when it happens. Now, your pastor, I want you to know, if you're a, a young man here today, if you're an old man here today, I don't care, young or old, if you want to be in a discipleship group with your pastor, you will be. Now, I'm going to ask you to wake up at 6 a.m. to do it. But uh, and I'm going to tell you, I'm wide open to that. It happens. I'm in about five of these groups all week long. And uh, I was in a group this week. Some of these are done with day springers. Some of these are done with students. And some of these things are done with pastors. I have a couple groups that have been long standing. We've been meeting for four or five years with a group of pastors, two, two different groups. And I love the insights I get from them. Uh, sometimes what we do is go over this very passage we did this week. Hmm, what passage shall we cover? Let's cover Acts 1, 1 to 11. What do you think about that, boys? They don't know. I'm doing my Sunday sermon, but so I'll throw it out there. And I ask, first question I ask is, what is the Holy Spirit highlighting in your imagination right now? What's he highlighting for you? And uh, someone said about wait. I said, what do you suppose wait means? Does it mean just stop doing stuff? Not, by the way, it might. It might mean you need to just stop doing stuff and hang around to see what happens. But not usually. I think waiting means this. Well, I'm going to tell you. One of the guys said, Let me tell you what I think when I think of waiting. I think of Drew Brees. I said, What? Drew Brees? What are you talking about? He says, he says When I was a kid, I, uh, I decided I'm going to get Drew Brees' autograph. I said, Yeah, what'd you do? He said, Well, got me a football. So, preparation, you see it? Got me a football. And uh, I bought a ticket to a game, which probably put him out of, you know, I don't know fifty, hundred, two hundred 200 bucks. I don't have how much a pro football game club, but whatever it is. outlaid the money. So all night, he's spending money. He's getting ready. He's got his football. After the game, he goes down to the locker room door. He has said, "When Drew Brees comes out, this is where he comes out at. So he's outside of the locker room door with his football, anticipating, anticipating, eagerly, that's what waiting means, eagerly anticipating what God's going to do next, except this isn't God, this is Drew. And then he says, now I get a little bit panicked because I'm thinking, what if there's another exit besides this locker room door? So then he took his football and starts running around the stadium trying to find the door that Drew Brees might come out of. He says, No, I might have been right the first time. So he goes back to the original locker room door and he's waiting. And then all of a sudden, da-da-da-da-da. It happens. Brees comes walking out the door. And so Marshall decides, I'm just gonna wait back and see what happens. No, he doesn't. He says, I got my football, charge. Mr. Breeze. Probably with tears in his eyes. I know how he manipulates. Please! Oh, please. It's for my sister, or whatever you say when you want an autograph. Oh, it wasn't for a sister. He was for him. He went, Do you see what it is? Waiting isn't just hanging around at home hoping Drew Brees shows up at your house to sign your football. That ain't going to happen. And when Jesus says, I'm going to send my spirit, I want you to wait for it, they know you just don't hang around. Let's take some action. Let's prepare for the moment. So we're in this discipleship group and Marshall, my friend, I was just kind of kidding around. He says, Aaron, you don't know nothing about Drew Brees, do you? I just kidding around with him. He says, and Marshall says, yeah, but he knows about hunting. And all of a sudden I thought, oh yeah, hunting. Aaron actually hunts. Aaron hunts deer. Aaron hunts turkey. And so all of a sudden it came alive for him. Yeah, it's like hunting. By the way, we have a uh, Terry here with us today, the great deer slayer. Where you at, Terry? I forget where you were sitting. Hey, the great deer slayer. She has shot a deer that had, was an award winning. How many, how many points? 11. Eleven points, but they were uneven. Six on one side, five on the other. It was the biggest deer with the uneven, whatever. Anyway, she set a record for that. Now it's been, it's been beaten out. But I'm going to tell you, we got record setters here today that know how, but when Terry shows up to hunt, she prepares for the moment. She's prepared. She knows what she's doing. She's had practice. She shows up. And then does she kind of go to sleep to hope that something happens? And I'll hear the deer when he comes? No. She's wide awake. She's watching. She's looking. She knows how to pull the trigger. When it's done, she knows how to go harvest them. She knows it. I'm thinking, yeah. Biblically, you know what my favorite story is on, on, on waiting? The ten virgins. Remember that story? Ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom. And five of them, they're ready for them. And five of them kind of forgot to prepare. And so they get left out. But not the ones that are eagerly anticipating the bridegroom coming. Can I ask you something? Anybody here eagerly anticipating what the Spirit of God is about ready to do in your life? If you're eagerly anticipating... Whoa, it's going to happen. If you're not eagerly anticipating, waiting for it, it won't happen. Are you ready? Are you getting prepared? He's about ready to move. The spirit of Almighty God. Remember that spirit of miracles, the spirit of signs, the spirit of wonders, the spirit of evangelism, the spirit of the Greek. He's about ready to move our you ready? Drew Brees is nowhere close to what the Spirit of God's gonna do in your life. Number four is this. Apparently, there's a step beyond water baptism. Look there, verse three. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Now water baptism is great stuff. We have here where we baptize people. And if you haven't been baptized yet for your salvation we want to baptize you. You say, how old do you have to be? All you have to have is your parents' consent if you are a youngster. If you're five and six and seven years of age as long as your mom and dad says, I think they're ready, I think they understand sin I think they understand forgiveness, then we're ready to baptize. But you can be Elderly, it doesn't matter the age, we believe in water baptism. And what we typically do here is we put you down in the water and bring, and bring you back up, thank the Lord. But what that means is this. A couple things that water means is cleansing. That you can be cleansed of your sin. Now some of us here have done some really wicked things. All of us have sinned. Some of us have some really wicked things. Horrific things. Some things so bad you've never told anybody. That's how bad. Can I tell you the truth? Jesus can wash it away. He can make you clean. Praise be to God. My favorite passage to go to when I'm out at the penal farm is this. I love going to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is written in the aftermath of David's incredible sin. Do you remember this passage? David has had adultery with Bathsheba. And out of that adultery comes a pregnancy. Out of that pregnancy, David says, let's go kill the man that she's married to so he didn't find out about this, so that everybody doesn't find out about it. And so what we have is adultery, we have murder, and then the baby comes and the baby ends up dead because of David's sin. So we've got adultery, we've got murder, and we got a dead baby, and David is thinking, and God knows it. What am I gonna do? He writes a song, Psalm fifty-one. And in that psalm, the first stanza goes like this: "Blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me." And that's what water baptism does. We wash away. We cleanse. In fact. One of the pictures of baptism is we put you down in the water, you die, and we raise you to resurrection life. But when we raise you to resurrection life, you are clean. Your sins are blotted out. Can anybody here get excited about that? But David knows something else has to happen. Cleansing's not enough. Having my sins blotted out is not enough. I want something more. And that's the second stanza of Isaiah 51. The second stanza goes like this. Create in me a clean heart. I don't want to just be clean on the outside. I want to be clean on the inside. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, I need for you to do not just the washing outside. I need for you to do an incredible work on the inside. And in this passage, Water baptism's not enough. I want to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Cleansing's not enough. I want to fill you to the brim with me and it's about ready to happen for all those people who are eagerly anticipating it to happen. Are you anticipating it's about ready to happen? Fifth thing is this. Date setting. Date settings, not of the spirit. Verse uh, verse 6. So when they'd come together, they were asking, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They wanted to know, when is Messiah coming? Because Messiah is going to get that jack boot of Rome off of our necks. When is Messiah coming so we can put the smack down on Rome? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know about that kind of stuff. What you do need to know about is that I am coming just the same way as you watch me go into heaven. I'm coming back. He says, there's some things you need to know, some things you don't need to know. This is what I get out of all that. I'm going to teach you a word here. Eschatological means end times. Say the word eschatological. eschatological. Eschatological inquisitiveness is not appropriate. Eschatological inquisitiveness is saying, I wonder when he's going to come and exactly how he's going to come, if he's going to come. Listen, all that stuff. Uh, can I tell you how to get rich? You, you want to know that, don't you? This is free. I'm not even going to make this part of your tithe thing. I'm just going to... This is free. You can get rich... By writing about the end times, particularly if you name a date and describe exactly how it's going to happen, and then the whole aftermath. In fact, you could write several novels on this and make a mint. Wait, wait, wait. That's already been done. Some of you read them. I think the Lord says, eschatological inquisitiveness is simply not appropriate. What is appropriate? And it's this, eschatological expectation. He is coming back. We look forward to him coming back. We don't know the time. We don't know the date. We don't know those things. All I know is we will be waiting for it to happen. We will be ready for it to happen. They asked John Wesson one time, what would you do if you knew that this day was going to be your last day? And this is what he said. I would spend it just as I intend to spend it now. And he went ahead and read off his schedule for the day. (laughs) I love that. How? I'm going to spend my life today like I spend every day doing the Lord's business. I'm going to go over there and have a Bible study. I'm going to go over here and preach. I'm going to go to work and and, and, and bless people at work. I'm going to do this. and to, But that's how I spend every day for the glory of God. I'm not going to rush around in a panic because somebody said Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And yeah, I know what some of you say. Yeah, but Matt, you don't get it. Things are come together. It's obviously the end times are now. Stop it. Stop that. Amen. It's been coming together for two thousand years. Some thought everything had come together right here in Acts one. Some people thought it all came together in year one hundred, or in year fifteen fifty, or in the year eighteen twenty six. They're going to keep saying, "Hey, it's all coming together. It's all coming together," and we can say, "Yeah, it's coming together like here, like never before." We'll be right because. We're older now than ever before, this earth. Amen? But having said that, you have no clue when Jesus is coming back. What you do have a clue about is he is coming back. Are you eagerly anticipating it? A, B, are you ready? Then the key of this whole passage seems to be right here be witnesses in the Spirit. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates which the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. If you have your Bible, could you quick go back to Isaiah 43? Because in this passage, Jesus seems to be quoting... The Lord in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, what seems to be happening, you can go down to verse 8, 43, 8. What seems to be happening is God's getting together a courtroom. Now, let me, real quick, I just want to see who I'm talking to here. How many of you have ever been inside of a courtroom? All right? Good. Most of us. How many of you have ever been a witness in a courtroom? All right? Some of us. Good. A lot more the second service than the first. Let me tell you about being i I've been a witness. I was kind of honored to be asked. You know, you know what to do. You go in there and say, okay, it's time for our witness. You stand up there and you put your hand on the Bible. I'm grateful that they still ask of that for that Mississippi. I ask you to raise your hand. Repeat after me. You know. Something along the lines of, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And I've always been wondering why people don't say something like, if I knew the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I would be God. Not, not do it by God. Not many people know all that. But still, what we do is say, yes, I'll do that. And then they ask you questions about the person that you're being a witness for. And so I I did this. I was actually a character witness. And uh, I stood up there, and and it dawned on me as I'm speaking. The whole courtroom hates that guy. And it's my duty to change their mind. His reputation rides on my testimony. They, They thought about it. Adding 20 witnesses, they decide. let's just go with one. Let's go with Matt Friedman. So I was the witness that day. His reputation rode on my witness that day. You talk about sobering. That's sobering. Because you could raise him or you could deep-six him right there. And so we gave a testimony. What this means is this. Your testimony is important to God. Your witness is important to God. Let's read it, 43.8. What's happening is, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that all the peoples may be assembled. This is what we think is happening. God's getting together a big courtroom. And he's saying, okay, all those who are blind, even though they have eyes, or deaf, even though they have ears, this is what's happening. We think what's happening was, bring in Moloch. Moloch has eyes, but they're fake. Ears, but they're fake ears. Nose, but it's a fake nose. Bring in Moloch and let him bring in his witnesses to say, yep, Moloch changed my life. You know, I was down, I was out. Then Moloch came into my life and changed me. me. Sure, I had to go ahead and sacrifice my firstborn to him, but still, he changed my life. Or Baal. Let him bring in Baal and let Baal bring in all his witnesses to prove that Baal's right. Or to Asherah or any number of the gods. And this is as close as you come to Old Testament humor. This is hilarious. They've got no witnesses. Moloch doesn't have witnesses. Baal doesn't have witnesses. Asherah doesn't have witnesses. But then this is what God says. This is the most sobering passage in all the Bible. To me, it's right there at verse 10. You, says the Lord God, says Yahweh, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. God is saying, my reputation rides on you. My reputation rides on you. My reputation rides on you. They say that there are five Gospels. You all know the five Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and most people never read the first four. But they know that you're calling yourself a Christian, and they can see by your action, are you a good witness or a poor one? But we know this, Jesus' reputation rides on your words and your actions today. Now, if that's not sobering, I don't know what is. Now, this is the amazing part of this passage. After this moment where God says twice, you will be my witnesses, they were lousy witnesses. They broke the Ten Commandments. They did a horrible job of bringing a good reputation to Yahweh. And then this is what happened. Jesus says, let's do this again. You're my witnesses, and I'm going to send my spirit to ensure you're extraordinary witnesses. And the Spirit of God fills them, and their march across the Roman Empire began. And that march across the Roman Empire has come all the way to 1100 Business Park Drive right here. Jesus, thank you for being that strong, strong, strong spirit to come all the way here. I'm not quite done. Here we go. Last thing. Our appointment with the Spirit doesn't allow standing around. (laughs) Verse 9. After he'd said all these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing asked an incredibly... (laughs) I don't know. I'm an educator, and I've heard all my life there are no stupid questions. This is about as stupid a question I've ever known. Except it gets their attention because it's so stupid. As that is, men of Galilee, why are you looking in the sky? Can you... I I think I'm one of those guys. I look over the, the guy in white and say, you must not be from around here. That doesn't happen every day. Jesus, literally, imagine. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Jesus is standing in front of you right now. Now imagine him elevating. His feet leave the ground. He's elevating. He goes up, goes up. You've never seen anything elevate in your life before. Not like this. No human has ever elevated. There are no elevators. There's no escalators back then. You've never seen this before. Can you see him going up? Quit looking at him. Do you see him going up? Quit looking at him. Do you see him going up? It's impossible not to see him going up, isn't it? Now he's up in the clouds. You've never seen this. thing. There's never been any airplanes. You've never seen someone go all the way up in the clouds. And now... He's gone. And somebody comes up and says, why are you looking up there? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Why am I looking up there? That doesn't happen every day. But it got their attention. And this is the attention it got. Such an incredibly obvious thing. Why are you looking up in the sky? This Jesus who just went up in the sky, who just went up in the clouds, this Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've watched him go in to heaven. Don't stand around staring up into the sky. It's time for you to shoot. Go prepare. Go wait. Go be filled with the Spirit. Clarence Jordan says this: It's so much more pleasant to be sky people than earth people. Hezekiah created you to be an earth person. I'm going to fill you with my Spirit. Yeah, you're going to heaven someday, but right now you're not. Right now, I need for you to be my my reputation rides. On you. Oh, my goodness. One of the things we do on Sunday morning, for years, uh, the children rode to church with mom and dad, and we'd, we'd usually sing hymns on the way, old hymns, hymn book hymns, sing hymns on the way. Now that the children are gone, Mary and I started doing that, and we thought, yeah, let's do something a little different. So we started having a discipleship group. So on the way to church every Sunday morning, Mary and I are having a discipleship group, just she and I. Pretty cool. We are opening up a passage this morning, one of the Psalms, Psalm 93. And uh, typically she's discipling me. She's feeding me news perspectives. Eventually along the way I said, what does that mean? And she was talking about how Jesus, how the Lord wants to make us extraordinary. I said, what does that mean? To you, sweetheart. She goes, well, when I was in college at Asbury University, we were, uh, we were sitting in front of a preacher. Now, I forget what the sermon series was. I don't know if it was Fall Revival. I don't know. She goes, but I remember him saying, he will call you by your name. Then he said, so think right now. What is your name? It ought to have something to do with the future. What is your name? And Mary said, in that moment, I said, Jesus, I believe you want my name to be fruitful. She goes, all my life, since I was age five, I prayed that I might be fruitful. I said, what do you mean? Well, we have an audio tape of her. It's the cutest little thing. What do you want to be when you grow up? In a sweet little red-headed five-year-old voice, she goes, I want to be a wife and a mother. Her whole dream was to be a wife and a mother, to be fruitful, to have kids, disciple those kids and send them out. Now, our last one is getting sent in August. In the freedom house, all of a sudden feeling kind of lonely. You need to pray for your pastor. It doesn't bother Mary so much. I don't know. I'm in the fetal position in bed. Cry my eyes out on these kinds of things. First one was tough. I think the last one's going to be... Anyway, we're sending the kid off. And and, and Mary said today, you know, he has been faithful to me. I said, can I share something? She goes, yeah. I anticipate that God, from now until the day I die, is going to make my life more fruitful still. Amen that my best days are yet to come as far as fruitfulness is concerned. And she goes, I, I'm, I, I told her, I'm the third day into this program, but I want you to know I'm doing this. She didn't know about it. And so I just said, this is what I'm doing with my life right now. This is how I'm preparing. I'm preparing. I'm eagerly anticipating for the best days that are coming. And I don't know what fruitfulness means. I have no idea. All I'm praying for is that God will make The days that are coming. The decade or two or three, I have no idea. Freedom and men tend to die in their 60s and 70s. But I'm just going to tell you, as long as I'm here, that Jesus would make those days fruitful. My best days are coming. We had a time of prayer. But I'm going to tell you, folks, you need to prepare for the best fruitful days that are yet to come. And this passage and the next chapter are key, absolutely key, to those fruitful days. Amen. I don't care how old you are today. We already read a passage. No matter how old you are, you can be fruitful, you can be sappy, and you can be green. Right up to the day you die. Oh, that's what I want. You know, my favorite, my favorite examples in this church are the folks that are getting older and are still busy for the kingdom. Oh, I love to see... The Chisholms, for instance, as busy as they could be for the kingdom, standing out in front of abortion clinics. I love to see Mr. Henry saying, man, I still have a hunger and a thirst for the mission fields. I love to see the doers. Man, they just don't slow down. They just keep on stepping on the accelerator. Who else needs disciple? What's another prison I can go to? I love seeing this. I love seeing God doing his best thing in our midst in our latter days. He's going to do it for you. He's going to do it for your family. He's going to do it In the church, if you're young, if you're old, he's going to do it. I believe it. Do you believe it? That's pitiful. Do you believe it? Oh, God, make it happen. Make it happen. We believe even today, just like back then, your reputation rides on us, and we want you to have a great, a great reputation in this world today. And if it can not happen all world round, could you at least make it happen in this community, through this church, through our example. Fill us with your spirit, almighty God, that we might be fruitful, holy, like you want us to be fruitful and holy.